privilege to be with you, and it's always a privilege to get to talk to you about such important things. Thank you, Jason, for the prayer and for reminding us uh, of how we've seen good things and helpful things in the book of Leviticus. Congratulations. Uh, you've made it through the entire look of, book of Leviticus. Today is our final uh, talk on Leviticus. <laughs> you can clap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, seriously, this is... Uh, uh, well, I think a number of people would view as the, the hardest book in the Bible to, to read, and uh, we've journeyed through it selectively. And I hope, you know, I, I know that, the, that we haven't taken away all the challenges or made it the most fun thing in the world to read, but I hope that uh, in the future when you come back to Leviticus, you're going to see more meaning there and be able to uh, glean more from it than you have in the past. And we'll finish up today hopefully with some things that will guide us forward in that direction. If I were going to give you just one Summary verse for the whole book of Leviticus, which shows up more than just this once, uh, maybe, maybe two or three times uh, in, in Leviticus. It's, uh, it might be this one right here as a summary. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy because God is holy. This is what we learn from the book of Leviticus. Unfortunately, sometimes there's misunderstanding about holiness. And that terminology doesn't mean to us what it should be. Years ago, I went with a friend to a Pentecostal worship service, and uh, not to say uh, bad things about our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. There's tons of good there that could be said, but the particular branch or the particular uh, instance of it that I was uh, uh, coming up against that night, when I went to this service, the guy was preaching on holiness. My memory's vague. It's been probably over 20 years ago. But uh, as we were there, I remember him talking about holiness, and what I want to say is he listed off like, six, eight, ten things that he didn't do or his family didn't do, and he would say, it's holiness. And it was things like, like I said, my memory shake, it was things like not having a TV in his house. I want to say maybe not going to skating rinks or bowling alleys or, or things like that. And he'd say, it's holiness. Get after it. He said, my parents say, you're depriving those kids. And he said, I say, it's holiness. Well, I'm not sure the kids were deprived by not going to skating rinks. But I'll tell you this, they were getting a twisted version of holiness. And they're probably still recovering from it today. Because they were getting a twist, twisted version of the heart of God. And whatever we do when we read the scriptures, we have to keep the heart of God central. That's first of all, as we've talked about, it's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We look full in his wonderful face, and that gives clarity to the rest of the Bible. And it may make us back off sometimes and say, well, I just need to come back to that later because that doesn't seem to work with what I know about Jesus, and I'm not sure about how to understand that right now. But whatever we do, we try to get to the heart of God in the Scriptures, and we learn that holiness is not about finding a list of things God doesn't like and then saying, I'm better than other people because I don't do that list of things. Holiness is about getting in the presence of this wonderful God, being set apart for Him, and then reflecting His character as we do that. That's what holiness is about. And as we close our study of the book of Leviticus today, I just want to remind you of what it's all about. Remember that they are, the setting here is them at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been delivered. They've been taken out of bondage to slavery. Now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have to learn a whole new way to live. They've been slaves. They've been told what to do their whole life. They've been worked to death their whole lives. And now they've got to, got to rewind their, their minds. They've got, to, they've got to retrain all their thinking. Because they're learning a totally different way of life. 
And they're learning not only is there a God, is there a God who comes to save us and tells us what his name is, but this God is going to teach us how to live. He's going to give us the law. Not just that. He's not going to give us the law and go away and watch from a distance. This God is going to come and live with us. And we're forming a new nation now, learning what it means to live with a God who does something like that. And so no more isolated ethics, no more speculative worship, no more appeasing whatever the gods may be, but learning how to live with the God who has revealed himself as our redeemer and, yes, as the creator of the whole world. And so when you read Leviticus, remember, even when there are confusing things that we will encounter, remember that this is about a relationship with a holy God who said, I want to make covenants with you. Make a covenant with you. I want to be in a relationship with you. And so you may read and you say, well, I don't understand why they couldn't eat rock badgers. Well, okay. And there may be reasons why we don't get that and, and things like that. And remember that you can discuss the reasons for it. Some of these things probably we'd find that were associated with paganism and idolatry. Some of them associated with values that may be a little bit strange to us, like, like blood and how blood's connected to life and death. And so they're working these things out. But the whole point of it is that they are to be involved with God. And they're to learn what it means to be a pure people and a holy people set apart for the living God. So as we enter into this, this last portion, we're going to look at Leviticus 24. But, but let me just remind you of the structure of Leviticus. I put this up here for you before. This is from Michael Morales. And I'm going to be drawing on Morales a good bit today in, in this talk. He's written a, a book on the theology of Leviticus. And uh, uh, if you haven't figured this out over the course of the last several months, uh, I'm not an expert on Leviticus. And so I'm drawing on experts, and particularly this guy. And uh, he, he has suggested that uh, Leviticus 16 may be not only at the heart of Leviticus, but at the heart of the whole Pentateuch. And this is that pinnacle you see there. The first half is you, uh, you're approaching God through blood. And the second half, you're living with God through holiness. But at the pinnacle there, you have the Day of Atonement. And of course, this, this is one way to think about arranging the structure uh, where you have the sanctuary laws, the priestly laws, the personal laws, the first half, and then reflected again in the second half of the book of Leviticus. That's, that's the way he, at least as a possibility, uh, throws out there for, for structuring. Uh, now, uh, this makes Leviticus 16 very significant, doesn't it? If it's at the heart of the Old Testament. And this is the Day, the day of Atonement where things are, are purified, where the tabernacle and the priest and the people are purified, they're cleansed. And this makes living with God in God's presence possible. It, here's just another way of thinking about this, really what I've already said, but it's you know, the first half there, you get approaching God through blood. Something about that we may not fully grasp, but, but it's made possible for us to approach God. In Leviticus 16, then, climaxing that and being a pivot uh, until the, the second half where there's, we commune with God through our holiness and taking on his holiness. The point I want to emphasize to you is that all of this is centered on the presence of God. You're approaching God. You're communing with God. And so Morales says that the, the primary theme and theology of Leviticus and of the Pentateuch as a whole is Yahweh's, the Lord's, opening a way for humanity to dwell in the divine presence. 
And this would fit well with what uh, A.W. Tozer, I put this up here for you at one point earlier, A.W. Tozer says about Christianity beyond just the book of Leviticus. The presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. The central fact of Christianity is the presence of God. But it's not just Christianity, you see. That, was, that started back in the Old Testament. That started back with God approaching the people in the Pentateuch and saying, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to live with you. And now God is waiting for us, his children, to push in to a conscious awareness of his presence. This takes us back to the point of creation itself. Do you know that the tabernacle was made in certain ways to remind us of creation? To remind us of the Garden of Eden, for example, the cherubim that you find in the most holy place and on the, the curtains or whatever, you, you, the, reflecting the cherubim of the Garden of Eden. That's just an example of how the tabernacle calls us back to creation. It calls us back to the Garden of Eden. What was happening in the Garden of Eden? God was walking with people. And this was the point of creation. That God could love us and make us his own and have fellowship with us. In fact, uh, the, 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 the creation itself, this has been argued by multiple people, I think, but one uh, well-known uh, Old Testament scholar named John Walton, is, he argues that, the, that the, the, the creation is basically a temple story. It's a, it, it, the cosmos itself is presented as a temple. That's why you have rest on the seventh day. That's what, that's what in ancient, in ancient world gods would do, deities would do in the temple. They rested. People would understand that when they, when they read that. This was a temple story. God is creating a place that's meant the whole creation of the world. You thought, oh, well, that's great. It's God's power creating, and it is. But it's a purpose to that creation. It's made for people to worship. People are made for worship. The climax of the creation story is not humanity being made. The climax of the creation story is humanity in fellowship with God on the Sabbath. The seventh day of rest. This, we're getting into the story of the Bible. The entire world was created for fellowship with God. In the Sabbath, God, the first thing God ever blesses is the Sabbath. You know that? He blesses it. He sets it apart. That's going to be the day. It's going to be a sign of the covenant. It's going to be a day of worship for the people down through the ages. And that's why I've decided I'm going to start going to church with the people who meet here on Saturdays. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not saying we need to be Seventh-day Adventists. But I'll tell you this, we need to grasp the principle that God has set apart this world for fellowship with him. And for people to worship him. And then the tabernacle shows up. This fellowship is lost. You know, through sin, this fellowship is lost. Humanity and God, there's a separation created. God comes and rescues his people. He establishes this covenant with them. And he, builds this, he has them build this tabernacle where his presence will dwell. He is restoring. This, this is new creation. It's restoring the presence. Saying, I want to be with you. And I want you to return to the point of creation 
to worship me. And that takes us up to where we're going to focus in chapter 24 here. And this chapter doesn't seem that significant to us when we read it at first. And I'm going to read, it, uh, read a few verses from it here in just a minute. Let me just uh, show you this uh, outline of the second half of Leviticus. You have holiness laws in chapter 17 through 22. Then you have sacred times. And that's where we're going to focus here. And arguably, chapter 24 is at the center of this and, and possibly at the center of the book, meant to be at least a climactic statement for the book. Then you have covenant blessings that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, and you have the appendix at the end, the vows and, and the redemption material. So that's what we talked about last week. So, so we have these sacred times here, and, and the question is, what, what is the significance of this chapter 24 being inserted here where he talks about the holy bread? The holy bread's being put out there. Well, okay, what's that? And then after that, you get a story of blasphemy, and a guy's put to death for blaspheming God. Well, let's see if we can make some sense of this. If you want to open your Bible or your Leviticus book to chapter 24, we're going to read a few verses here. The first thing, before I read those verses, let me just tell you, we've talked about the Sabbath being the day, the creation day, day set aside for rest and worship. And the first thing you want to know about chapters 23 through 25 is there's a sabbatical principle, a Sabbath principle running through them. Let me just read you the, the start here before you go further in chapter 23. Oh, I don't have the verse up there, but that's chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. That whole chapter is going to give you a number of feasts that they're supposed to observe. They are my appointed feasts. Six days... Shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, a day where you come together for worship. The seventh day, every week, you shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the appointed at the time appointed for them. And so then you go down through the chapter, and there's kind of a Sabbath feel created to that whole chapter. Uh, where you have these other days or times of, of gathering, rest, and worship. Now that, that's important as we're talking about the, the meaning of the Sabbath and its significance for us understanding what's going on here uh, in Leviticus and in this chapter. So then we get, we get to this, this passage about the bread, and let's just read. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten, from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. That's the, the, the oil to burn the, burn the lamp. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. So you have, the remember, the holy place and the most holy place? And here we are in, in the holy place, and there's the bread of the presence, and there's the lampstand. And the lampstand, if you look at some other uh, passages, Exodus 25, Numbers 8, it looks like, at least the way Morales understands this, is that it looks like the, the lamps are made to shine on the table where the bread is. And this holy bread is brought out every Saturday. You shall take fine flour, this is verse 5, and bake 12 loaves from it, two-tenths of an ephah, shall be in each loaf. So if you're trying to get the recipe here, make sure you don't use more than two-tenths of an ephah. That really, that'll mess it all up. All right? 
Only two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Why were there twelve? Because there were twelve tribes of Israel. These are representing Israel. And, and if you know more about this, you know that this bread, I don't believe it's used here in this passage, but this bread is, is called the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. The bread of God's presence. Now here, you just get the picture, okay? Every Sabbath, the priest coming out, taking the bread, the loaves, and setting them out with the lights shining upon them. Twelve loaves, loaves for twelve tribes. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the, it is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. An eternal covenant. You know what else is called an eternal covenant? The Sabbath day. There's this significance, this symbolic significance going on to represent the covenant. It's a big deal. This bread of God's presence represents a covenant, just like the Sabbath day represents the covenant that's been made with God. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, as it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So what's happening here is these loaves are representing the, the tribes of Israel and they represent the eternal covenant that God has. And this light shines upon them. And it's, it's like Israel is basking in the light of God's presence. In the light of God's love. And it's represented this covenant, his presence with them, shining upon them as they are represented there. And every Sabbath day they're called together to worship and to rest and to rejoice before the Lord who is present with them. Every Sabbath day, they symbolically represent Israel as basking in the renewing light of God's presence. The purpose of creation, that people could live in fellowship with God, is being symbolically reenacted Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. The shining light of God's presence, the warmth of his love represented here as we call this the bread of his presence with us. It's not, uh, it's not just that we have the goal of being in God's presence, although that is the goal, right? But it's more than that. It's that as we bask in God's presence, we are becoming holy. And this is the means to becoming more and more holy. And I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, it says we, with unveiled face, drawing on the story about Moses, we all with unveiled face, behold, as we behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is what's happening here. You come into the presence. See, in, in Exodus uh, 31, you have this statement from the New Living Translation. I have it there. The people of Israel are to be careful to keep, the Lord says, they're to be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So part of what happens on the Sabbath day is that we come to know who the Lord is. We come to know about our relationship with the Lord. We remember 
what we were made for. We remember what the point of creation was. We remember what happened to us and where we came from and that the Lord is the Lord and he is our Lord and he is present with us. Week after week after week. That is what we're reminded of. And guys, I want to tell you, that's what we were created for. It's what you were created for. It's what God has been doing throughout history. Showing up and saying, come live in my presence. I'll take care of your sins. I'll take care of whatever separated, for, for, uh, separated you from me. And I will bring you into fellowship with me so that you can learn more and more and more what it is to live with me. I'll cross every barrier. I will part the Red Sea. I will bring you out. You live with me. And this is the story of the Bible. But even here in Leviticus, we're pointing, I think, to, to something more. Something more than, than uh, just coming to the tabernacle and being reminded. This is what you get in chapter 26. The Lord says, I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. Now just stop right there. The first part was done at the end of Exodus. The Lord, end of Exodus, early Leviticus. But, but you have the Lord coming and filling the tabernacle. Right? He's got a dwelling there. But you know what else the tabernacle is called? A tent of meeting. And it's got to move from just being a dwelling for God to a tent of meeting for us. And we have to learn how we can approach and be there and then live in communion with him. But then look beyond that, okay? He makes his dwelling among us. But then he, he, the promise is to go even beyond that. I will walk among you. So even here in Leviticus, we have this idea that he's not just located in the tabernacle or the, later the temple. But he's going to walk among the people and I will be your God and you will be my people where else did God very clearly walk among the people well yes we're coming to that <laughs> we're coming to Jesus but but initially in the Garden of Eden God walked with the people right this is creation the, the point of creation being restored being renewed God fixing what we messed up so that we can live rejoicing at peace in his presence. This is the promise. So, Charles, when we get to the New Testament, and we get this here. And the word became flesh and dwelled. And that word there is the same word, that's, uh, the same root word is, is, is in tabernacle in Greek. The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. We're not just getting a cute illustration. This language, this summarizes the point of the Bible. This takes up creation and redemption and the story, the greatest story that's ever been told. The, the promises, the future, what God wants to do for people. This takes it up and says, he did it, God came. He dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. The glory that filled the tabernacle. The glory that may have frightened the first onlookers. That glory showed up in the tender, beautiful face of Jesus Christ. And John says, we saw it. 
glory is of the only Son from the Father. And what that glory looks like when it actually has flesh and bones in a face, it's full of grace. It's full of grace and truth. This is the progressive revelation that we talked about a couple weeks ago. God getting things clearer to us over time. We get to Jesus and we see what his glory most clearly looks like. And it is beautiful. The story doesn't stop there. Because Jesus is crucified and he rises and he ascends. But he says, I'm not going to leave you alone. Right? The story that God started in, in Genesis 1 to 2 and that he set out to fix in Exodus and Leviticus, well, really before that. <laughs> the story that, that he took up by, by coming and taking on flesh in our world. He didn't just say, okay, well now, time's up with that. I'll forgive your sins, and one day we can be together. No. He says, and this is where we need, I'm going to use a big word with you, okay? This is a theological word. It's a pneumatology. This is the theology of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes our theology, our pneumatology is really, really weak in the church. And we know something about Jesus, and we may know something about God, but we don't know enough about the Holy Spirit. But see, this is, hard. this is part of the whole story of redemption. If we're going to know how God redeems and how he keeps his promises, how he fulfills everything, we have to know about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has come to envelop us in God's presence in a way that goes beyond anything we've known before. So that you get Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians in two different ways saying, saying collectively, the body of Christ, you are the temple temple you know uh, that took the place of the tabernacle you as the body of christ you're the temple of the holy spirit and then even individually he says don't you know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit <laughs> this is crazy right? that's what happens for christians we are made when we become christians we are made dwelling places for god Here's my question for you, okay? We're, we're going to come to a close here now. Have we taken our dwelling place and turned it into a tent of meeting? One of the reasons that we struggle to sense the presence of God is that we've forgotten how or maybe we never learned how to meet with God. And say, this dwelling place of the Holy Spirit will not just be a dwelling place where I stand off from it, but it will become a tent of meeting. And I will know I can approach and I can find that God is really present. This makes all the difference in how we think about holiness. But this holiness has to be cultivated in the presence of God. We bask in his presence. This is why we talk about having times of solitude. And learning how to do this. I don't mean to burden you with that. And I, I've got to grow myself. Haven't been doing that great lately, honestly. Um, uh, so don't take this as me preaching down to you. But uh, we talk about uh, making times for making space, making appointments with God, 
going into solitude, meeting with him in the word, those kind of things, learning how to do this. All this is is saying, I want to meet with the God who has said he would live with me. I want to make myself present to him because he has said I can live in his presence. But it has to be cultivated. We are sacred space. And the church, uh, the church gathered is sacred space. And as we gather and as we seek God, individually and together, we can experience his presence. We must experience his presence. And this changes how we approach holiness. Holiness, understood in the presence of God, can never be a list of rules where we suddenly think we're better than other people because we didn't do that and we did do that. We are basking in something that's totally beyond us, beyond our control. We are getting to know the living God. And submitting to him, letting him change us with the warmth of his presence, looking full in his wonderful face, and being transformed from glory unto glory. I'll tell you what you do. This is the, for some of you right now. I know what you're thinking. Well, I haven't. Maybe at some point I did, but I haven't been experiencing the presence of God. Maybe you think, I've even tried. And it's just, I'm running up against obstacles. I'm, I'm facing things that I just don't, I don't know. What, I don't know, but it's just not happening to me. and makes you doubt it all. I'm tell you what you do, okay? You worship. <laughs> because God deserves our worship, even if he's not doing exactly what we want him to do. Even if we're confused. Even if we're not sensing the presence like we would like to. We're called to worship, <laughs> Humanity was made for worship, so we bow down for worship, and then we take the Sabbath, we take the rest, and we, we say, I want to be present to God. And as we worship, and as we rest, we expect that it won't be very long until we start to see his face. And I encourage you to do this. This is what, this is what the hymn writers have found, and I've told you some of this before, but it's been over 10 years ago now, when um, almost 11 years, when I had an encounter with the Lord that really changed my life. And I started noticing uh, things in the scriptures and in hymns that I hadn't noticed before. Things like the song, Be With Me, Lord. I cannot live without you. I dare not try to take one step alone. And one, one line says, Be with me, Lord. No other gift or blessing you could bestow. And I suddenly understood what that writer meant. <laughs> no other gift or blessing you could bestow could with this one compare. A constant sense of your abiding presence. Wherever I am to know that you're near. We sang a few weeks ago, I think, Drew, maybe you, you were, uh, had to sing this song. I'm glad you did Trust and Obey. That song, you can follow it through. You know, you, you walk with the Lord in the light of his love, and there's a glory he sheds on his way. It goes on down and says, we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows is for those who will trust and obey. But then I saw the last verse, and I knew what he meant. Then, in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet. Walk by, the, by his side on the way. What he says we'll do. Where he sins will go. Never fear. Just trust and obey. Abide with me. That wonderful song. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. You ever notice the line? I need thy presence. Every passing hour. 
what but your grace can foil the tempter's power? You see what the writer's saying is that nothing's going to help me unless you help me. (laughs) And I am totally, I'm a dependent. God has to write us all on his taxes (laughs) because we're all dependents. Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be. Through life and death, through cloud and sunshine, something like that. Lord, abide with me. That's what we want. We want the Lord to abide with us. We're not just asking for something that's kind of this sideshow over here for people every now and then to bump up against. We're asking for the heart of the promises of the scriptures to be true in our lives. And they can be. Praise God. Praise team, would you guys uh, come on up and let me close this in prayer. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Make us aware of the glorious opportunity we have. You have torn the veil and the Spirit has come out of the temple and into our hearts Make us aware of this glorious opportunity to live in fellowship with you, Lord. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.